Macworld Podcast, number 33, Special Edition, March 31st, 2006. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Saruz Faravar. Today on the Macworld Podcast, we're going to be celebrating the 30th anniversary of Apple Computer. That's right, Apple has been around longer than I've even been alive. We're going to be dividing the show up into two parts today. Our first part is going to be in an interview with Owen Linsmeyer, an author and journalist. He wrote a book called Apple Confidential 2.0, published by No Starch Press in 2004. An excerpt from this book is now available on our website, Macworld.com, so you can check that out as part of our complete package of our anniversary coverage. We're also going to be hearing from two old you know, Mac journalists, uh, our editorial director, Jason Snell, and the publisher of Macworld Magazine and Mac Publishing, Rick LePage. And they will be having a conversation that they recorded earlier, and we're going to be playing that for you later in the podcast. But, you know, at, just to kick things off a little bit, I wanted to just talk about, you know, sort of what the Mac has done for me in my life and the various Macs that I've used. I was born in 1982, so I was born two years before the first Mac 128K was released. So I grew up with the Mac. I grew up with a 128K in my house. We had the 128K. We had the 512. Uh, I got a, then we had a Classic 2, uh, a couple of Performas. We even had – my favorite was the Performa 6115. Uh, that had the pizza box case that was really easy to open up. Uh, and then actually later in, in the house where I grew up in, uh, just outside Los Angeles, we that served as our DSL router uh, for a long time because it had uh, a type of Ethernet connection that you could use uh, and you could run some routing software on it. So it was basically our DSL router in the mid and late 90s. That was how it would fade it away into retirement. But yeah, we, I mean, and now, you know, today I've, I've gone through, uh, G4 towers and power books, and now I have an iBook, uh, that I carry around with me everywhere, and I got a very cheap, uh, G4 tower that sits at home and is my media server. Uh, and at work I have the pleasure of using a dual G5. So I've really used quite the gamut of, of Macs. Uh, of course I've, I've gone through my, my share of iPods as well. Uh, I've had a, I've had a first-generation iPod, I've had a third-generation iPod, and now I have the iPod Nano. Um, I also have, believe it or not, a functioning Newton 110 that I received as a gift uh, many years ago when the Newtons were available. And that is a really neat piece of, of hardware right there. If you've never used a Newton... Well, if you've used a PDA, you know, you know, what it, what it can do and what it's like. But, you know, the Newton was, was really a few years ahead of its time. Um, you know, it's, it had a large form factor, yes, but in some ways it was more advanced. Its handwriting recognition, uh, was quite good once you used it enough. Um, I received it as a gift, as, you know, as basically a used item from an old family friend. And he used it every day in, in meetings and stuff. And he could, write anything in his natural handwriting, and the Newton was able to transcribe that and to convert that into regular text. I never used it enough to where it got to that point, but anytime he showed me, it worked great for him. So that was a really, really fun uh, piece of hardware there, but sadly it is no longer. But, uh, you know, so we're here to talk about all of that, all of the range of things that have happened at Apple, all the different kinds of Macs that, that are produced, and maybe even gain some insight onto what Apple might be doing in the future. 
So stick around, and uh, we're going to be hearing from Owen Linsmeyer, the author of Apple Confidential 2.0, right now. So I guess to start things off, I'd like to ask you if there's anything in particular that strikes you from the early days of Apple that is somehow revelatory to what we're seeing now. Are there, knowing what you know and and having done all the research that you've done, are there moments that are more clear to you now in retrospect? Yeah, I think that uh, you can take a look at Steve Jobs' contribution to Apple over the years, and you can see that he's always believed in a lot of the same things that he espouses now. Uh, Ease of use is number one of um, and also he has always had a particular style that he wanted to uh, have in his products. And if you go back to the Apple One, uh, the Apple One was just this uh, basically uh, motherboard that you populated with chips. And Steve realized that if it was ever going to appeal to people other than the hobbyists, it would have to be something easier to use. So he decided that it should come in a case. It should be uh, the power supply should be in the case, and you know it should have a really nice feel to it. And this is back in the days when almost all the uh, computers, the personal computers out there, were these kit computers that you would have to put together, and they came in clunky boxes, you know, with sharp metal edges. And the Apple II really was a departure from that, with nice, you know, uh, smooth, rounded corners and a plastic case. And it was something that was truly plug and play at the time. You, know, you plugged it into your uh, TV set, and you could you know, suddenly be watching uh, color graphics on screen. And I think that's kind of uh, something that you see all throughout the history of Apple, the, uh, the, the attention to details, the fit and finish, trying to make a really great product. Has the personality of Steve Jobs changed at all? Has the vision changed? Is he the same Steve Jobs that he was 30 years ago? Uh, clearly, he's not. I mean, when he founded Apple, he was a college dropout, a long-haired hippie freak walking around in you know bare feet and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. He was uh, very successful, very young in his life, and I think to some uh, respect that led to him being very, very arrogant. I mean, the guy was a millionaire, at, you know, before he was twenty, multimillionaire shortly thereafter, and I think he kind of believed the magic, you know, that he could do no wrong. And, uh, you know, clearly in 1985, when he got booted out of the company, that was a a body blow to him. It suddenly made him realize that uh, he was fallible. And with the next failing over time, you know, it never captured the imagination of people the way the Mac did. Uh, It wasn't clear that Pixar was going to be the success that it became over time, but he stuck it out. And, you know, when he came back to take over Apple, you know, my first impression was, uh-oh, this is going to be trouble because, you know, I remember the old Steve and the failures he's had with Pixar and, and Next and, uh, you know, the trouble that he caused at Apple uh, that ultimately led to his being ousted. But clearly he learned a lot in the, in the time that he was away from Apple, and all credit goes to Steve for basically turning the company around from what everybody thought was a death spiral. Let's go back to you You were talking about when Apple – or excuse me, when Steve Jobs was booted out of Apple – and what was the environment like for Apple employees at that time? Did they, you know, think, oh, great, he's gone, or that's horrible, he's gone? What was the reaction? Well, there was uh, mixed feelings. Uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, believed in Steve as one of the great visionaries of the company, clearly one of the two remaining founders at the company. 
So it was clearly a turning point for the company's history when the the last remaining founder uh, was forced out of his own company. And some of the true believers followed Steve to go to Next. And uh, a lot of people um, thought that Next was going to be quite literally the next big thing. It, it didn't turn out to be that. But, uh, you know, the company that he had founded continued to do quite well. It wasn't as if, you know, when Steve left that Apple was on, you know, fell on hard times. It was already having problems. But uh, John Scully, the CEO at the time, managed to grow the company tenfold during his tenure. So it's not like the company didn't survive without Steve. But it's certainly, I think, when he came back to it in the late 90s, he was pretty much the only person that could have pulled it out of its tailspin, and uh, he's done tremendous things there since then. A lot of people, or I should say Steve Jobs, has, as I'm sure you know, has a reputation for being difficult to work with at <laughs> times. Um, has that attitude Has that attitude changed over time? Has he gotten easier to work with at all? What have you heard from people who've worked with him? Well, I, I've never worked with him personally. Uh, the people that I have talked to uh, that have worked with him – claim that he's just as difficult and demanding nowadays. And uh, I think that many employees at Apple uh, still fear for their jobs uh, because they, they don't want to annoy Steve Jobs. Uh, they want to stay on his good side. And, you know, the, the joke is that, you know, they see Steve coming and they, you know, cross the street <laughs> or, they you know, they don't want to get into an elevator with him. Um, I think he's a very demanding person. I don't think that he's probably as brash as he was when he was a youngster. What are some of your favorite anecdotes and stories sort of, you know, from the back rooms of Apple in the early 80s? Uh, from the early 80s, geez. Uh, one of the things I love uh, is that Steve Jobs, when they were building the Macintosh, complained about how long it took to boot up the first Mac. And, uh, you know, they had shaved any, as many seconds off the startup process as possible. And the engineers thought that they had gotten it down to a reasonable amount. And Steve says, you know, think about this. We're going to be building millions of these things. And for every second that uh, we have to delay the startup, he says, you know, that's seconds off of people's lives. And if you multiply that by millions, he says, you know, we're killing people. We're taking time from those people. And it was that kind of uh, different thinking about, uh, you know, what the user interface and the user experience should be that I think is why the Macintosh is so easy to use. There are lots of of uh, sort of I guess myths around around the the original Apple, and I just wanted to, as someone who spent a lot of time researching this, I wanted to clarify a few of them. Uh, firstly, I'd like to start with the you know the famous or infamous, depending on how you look at it, visit to Xerox Park, mm-hmm. uh, where Steve Jobs was inspired to create the uh, Macintosh OS. How did that meeting come to be, and what actually happened? Okay, it was pretty well known that Xerox Park, the Palo Alto Research Company, um, was the place where a lot of great uh, innovations in technology were taking place. And Xerox had uh, built this center to basically try to envision what the future was going to be, try to create the the future. But they never thought that they would actually t- produce products out of these uh, visions and these uh, experiments. And a lot of people who were working at Apple had visited Xerox Park uh, informally and seen some of this really cool stuff. And they decided that, you know, it would be neat if they could get other Apple employees to go. And they kept trying to go after Steve Jobs to get him to see it because Steve was one of these kind of people. He didn't get it until he saw it. But once he saw it, he got it. 
And they ultimately convinced Steve to go with a bunch of high-level Apple executives and employees uh, and engineers. And when they got there, they were kind of blown away by what they had seen because this was the graphical user interface, uh, mouse, Ethernet, laser printers, all these things that we take for granted now. They had these way back in the day before, you know, when there was basically state-of-the-art was the Apple II and, uh, you know, with its character-based screen. And when they saw these bitmap graphics with overlapping windows, they realized this is really the future. And, you know, Steve Jobs, to his credit, said, you know, why aren't you guys doing anything with this? This is amazing. And he went back to Apple and basically changed the direction of the Lisa and the Macintosh projects, you know, on a dime and said, that's what we've got to do. And it wasn't a matter of Apple going, seeing what Xerox had done and stealing it. They were inspired by it, but then they had to go back and recreate all this, and they also had to improve it, and they did. They made great improvements. So the Lisa is really the world's first product that incorporated a GUI, a graphical user interface, um, and the Macintosh is really the product that you know took that and made it popular to the masses because it cost you know a quarter of what the Lisa did. So you know it. The the correct interpretation is that Apple got inspired by what they saw at Xerox. They didn't steal it, and they certainly didn't, um, you know, come up with all these ideas by themselves. Was there ever any formal arrangement between Apple and Xerox to license that technology or anything else of the sort? Uh, not to license the technology, but there was a formal arrangement to actually f- that allowed the visits by uh, Steve Jobs. Prior to Steve Jobs' visit, uh, you know, like I said, there was people that were allowed to come and go informally. But Xerox realized that, you know, that probably wasn't a great idea, so they kind of clamped down and shut down these informal visits. And so what happened, though, was Steve Jobs knew that he wanted to go see what was going on at Xerox Park, and this is just prior to Apple's uh, IPO. So he said to Xerox, okay, tell you what, you know, you guys can invest in Apple uh, pre-IPO if we can go and take a look at what's going on at Xerox Park. And so they agreed to allow that visit. You know, Xerox did well financially with the, the stock that they bought, um, and ultimately they tried to end up suing Apple, but the lawsuit was thrown out of court. So in hindsight, that's probably the deal of the century right there. Uh, it certainly could be, yeah. Um, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking about Steve Jobs, and obviously he has a great influence on the direction of Apple and the creation of Apple and Apple today. Um, who, in your view, are some of the unsung heroes of Apple, people behind the scenes who – uh, most Mac users or, you know, Apple fans wouldn't necessarily know about? Uh, well, there's a whole lot of them. I, you know, Steve Jobs is not an engineer. Steve Jobs is not an industrial designer. He doesn't do any of the actual hands-on creation of the products that we all use and love today. But he has, uh, to his credit, helped uh, bring about a spirit of openness at Apple so that people can really do what they do best. Uh, one of the people that I think that has benefited from being uh, led by Steve Jobs is Jonathan Ive, the head of the industrial design group there. He worked at Apple prior to Steve Jobs coming back in uh, 1997. Uh, he was there you know, during the Spindler and Emilio years, but he really wasn't given free reign to explore the, the designs that he wanted to. Uh, when Steve Jobs came in, he basically said to Jonathan Ive, you know, go for it, do something interesting, do something cool. You know, you know, the products that have been coming out under Emilio aren't sexy. They're boring gray boxes, you know, do what you think you really need to do. 
And, you know, as a result, we've got some really radical designs that, uh, you know, still today are appreciated as, you know, some of the best designs ever to come out of Apple. The, you know, the PowerBook, the titanium PowerBook design, the uh, G4 Cube uh, was an amazing, uh, you know, change. The, the iMac, you know, the flat panel iMac, all these things, the iPod, all these things are directly attributable to Jonathan Ive and his group at the Industrial Design Group. Who are some of the other other folks that were, you know, behind uh, maybe some of the older older hardware that, you know, we don't hear about very much? Well, I think we've, you know, probably a lot of uh, Mac fans know about Bill Atkinson and Andy Hertzfeld and, you know, Bruce Horn and, you know, the original Mac group. Um, uh, they Their contributions have been pretty well documented. Um, you know, I, I think even though he really wasn't instrumental in the Macintosh, uh, you, you've got to give a lot of credit to Steve Wozniak. Uh, you know, it's easy to look at Steve Wozniak as kind of the goofy, you know, nice guy who helped create the the company. But there would be no company without the two Steves. So Steve Wozniak was literally a genius in engineering. Anybody who's an engineer, hardware engineer, you talk to them, and they look back at, you know, his early designs, and, you know, they're blown away by, you know, how simple they were, how beautiful and elegant they are. Um, but that said, he never wanted to build a company. So it was Steve Jobs, comp, you know, being able to see the the potential to make a product out of what Steve Wozniak had created. It, it, you know, it was one of those great cross, you know, paths crossing. If if they didn't meet, you know, we would not have Apple. You know, the, these people would not have gone off to create, you know, their own companies. Um, you know, probably Steve Jobs would have gone into business in some regard, but he wouldn't be the success that he is today. Now, as you said, uh, Steve Wozniak is known for being a little bit more goofy than Steve Jobs. He's known to play practical jokes. He ran the the Dial-A-Joke service in the Bay Area for a long time. Um, do you have a favorite story about his or, you know, instance where, where uh, something that stands out over the history of of Apple or, or of, of himself that – Hmm. You can recall any come up come to mind? Well, uh, good question. Um, nothing that jumps to mind. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, Steve is really an amazing character. Steve Wozniak. This is. Um, I had the pleasure of interviewing him several times uh, over the course of the years for this uh, writing my books. And uh, what really I'm blown away by is just how humble he is. He's just a really nice, ordinary guy. He's not very full of himself, and he's given back tremendously to the community. Uh, he teaches uh, grade school kids how to use computers, and these kids come to his house and uh, get computers for free from him that he uh, has purchased directly from Apple. Um, you know, and Steve is just very nice and accessible, um, a wonderful guy. One of the, the true great things about writing my books is that I got to meet Steve Wozniak. He's a hero of mine. As someone who's probably – you've probably used Macs your whole life or, or since they've been out, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, is there and, – and studied them as a, as a journalist. Is there something about Apple or a particular product that they've come out with over the years that surprised you that, that said, hey, that's, that's kind of weird? I mean now we talk about how Apple is you know, becoming less of a computer company and more of a media company with the success of the iPod and the iTunes Music Store and all of these things. Are, is there anything along that line that for you represents a, a shift in, in the culture or the, the drive or the direction of the company? Huh. Um, 
I think that Apple has, you know, shifted gears a lot in the, in the past. There are there have been some products that they came out with that have not been nearly as good as others, and uh, you know they have in the past tried to do a lot more than they probably should have because I think Apple had such success with the Apple II and the Macintosh and laser writers that they started thinking, geez, we can create everything, and so they started you know designing their own. Uh, CRTs and their own printers, and a lot of those were just kind of Me Too products. And to Steve Jobs' credit, when he came back to Apple, he killed those projects, and he said, look, we've got to focus on the things we do best, creating great software and great hardware to run that on. And so I think that you know Steve Jobs has really uh, helped focus the company again, and you know now people wonder – is the company starting to bifurcate with you know the computer division and the iPod, and uh, you know who knows what'll happen now that uh, the Apple Core is suing Apple? Um, you know maybe the the solution to that is to break the companies apart so that now it, it's no longer in violation of their agreement that they had with the Beatles. As someone who has again you know studied this for a long time and used Macs for a long time, is there a product that you hope that Apple will come out with soon or that you expect them to come out with anytime soon? Yeah, certainly uh, I would love to see Apple do something along the lines of a TiVo-like uh, recorder for the Mac. Uh, you know, certainly people predicted for a long time there'll be an intersection between computers and television. Uh, the iPod with video is a first step towards that. But the problem is how do you load the iPod with video other than buying you know, these clips from the Apple iTunes music store? Uh, you know, one great way to get a lot of legal content would be to digitally record this in a you know, personal video recorder. Um, right now, there are products like that out there for the Mac uh, from a third parties, uh, such as Elgato Systems. Um, but what I'd really like to see is something where you can record it on your Mac, you can edit it on your Mac, you could burn it to your iPod, and you can also stream it to your TV. Because as Steve Jobs has said, you know, the TV is where you want to go when you want to turn off your brain. The computer is where you want to go when you want to engage your brain. So they're not often in the same rooms. Um, so I'm looking for a solution, a media center solution, where you take something like Front Row, but you put that interface on your TV with a remote control that you're already accustomed to using. Hopefully we'll see something like that this year. If Apple were to release a product like that, would that – is that something that you know hardcore Mac users should worry about? This shift of of Apple going from a computer company to a media company will they lose out because Apple is now focused on being media and developing hardware that will play and consume media? I don't think so because uh, Apple has uh, still uh, gets a lot of its money from its applications, software, and hardware. Uh, you know, iPod and the uh, the music content, and the video content that it's selling for the iPods certainly is becoming an ever increasing uh, uh, percentage of their revenue. But I don't think that Apple's ever losing sight of the fact that they are a computer company. I think Steve Jobs' roots are in computers, and I don't think they're ever going to walk away from the computing industry. Um, anything that uh, is profitable for Apple, the iPod. You know, all that profit falls down to their R&D. Their R&D is still very much involved in creating great Macintoshes, great additions to the operating system. I don't think it's something to worry about at this point. Great. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us. Look forward to hearing from you soon. Thank you very much. That was Owen Linsmeyer, 
author of Apple Confidential 2.0, available from No Starch Press, and it was published in 2004. And of course, an excerpt of Apple Confidential 2.0 is available on our website, macworld.com. Now we're going to switch gears a little bit, and we're going to hear from two longtime Macworld staffers, our editorial director, Jason Snell, and our publisher, Rick LePage. Now these guys have been covering the Mac for many years. Uh, They probably have used even more models of the Mac than I have. Uh, Rick and Jason were among the first people to get their hands on the new MacBook Pros when they came into the office, and they have lots of interesting things to say about them. So we're going to now cut to a conversation that they had reminiscing about about the past of Apple and uh, what might be in store for the future. So, Rick, I've been joking that this is the uh, the portion of the podcast where the old old men reminisce about things of days gone by. And I, I realized that um, I've got you beat in terms of uh, covering – not in terms of covering Apple because you were covering Apple 10 years before I started, but in terms of being an Apple – a computer user, right? You never used an Apple II. I never did. No, I actually the first, the first. I I joked that the first Mac I used was a Lisa, um, which came out about a year before the the Mac did. But I never had any interest in the Apple II market at all. See, I, I um when I was a kid, I actually started on a, a Commodore PET before there was even a Commodore sixty four Vic twenty. There was that Commodore PET, and it didn't have any graphics of any kind, and that was the first computer I ever used. And um, and then the I, I believe the Apple computer one Apple for every school in California program happened, and I think that may be the reason why we got some Apple systems in in the schools. And my, a teacher of mine um, who really got me into computers bought an Apple II Plus, and and at that point I got an Apple IIe roundabout. I mean, it's kind of funny. I got it in I think 1984. So, so just in time for the Mac to come and make it obsolete, and I bought an Apple II, and that was that was uh, uh, my computer for about four or five years. Yeah, well, we I, I think on the East Coast where I, I was living in Boston at the time, um, the Apple II didn't have the sort of resonance that it had on the West Coast. I mean, it still sort of had that that West Coast feel. Um, you know, Digital Equipment Corp. was the big company back then. Um, IBM was still pretty big, too. IBM had already come out with the PC, I believe, at that point. Um, but I, I got uh, Lisa, actually. I was working at Computer World at the time, and Apple sent a loaner unit uh, for, you know, the edit team to play around with. I was actually on the copy desk, and I fell in love with the thing. And about uh, three months after they brought it in, they said, okay, well, we want it back. And or you could pay for it if you'd like, and at the point that point in time, I was actually looking for a new car because I was riding around on a motorcycle, and uh, this was my first real job. And instead of buying a Triumph TR3, I believe is what it was, I bought a Lisa instead. And uh, I had a bunch of friends of mine who thought I was pretty crazy buying a computer, um, but you know it sort of started me on the road that I've been on ever since. And you, do you think you would have ended up as the president of Triumph World? <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. And I, I, it's interesting that nobody at Computer World um, cared <laughs> well, other than you. But, but back then, Computer World, was, uh, Computer World cared about mainframes. I mean, that was the big, you know, m- super mini computers from DEC were the, were the upstarts. And um, Eric Bender, who I think worked at PC World for a long time, was the editor of the microcomputer comics column, as we called it, at Computer World. And he was a little bit interested in it, but he had his hands full with lots of other stuff. 
Well, on the Lisa and the Mac, we're about as far away as you could get from from mainframe. So yes, very much. Yep, I still remember UCSD Pascal. That was what I played around in on the Lisa because none of the Lisa apps really worked very well. <laughs> see, see, and that's a beautiful segue because it was at UCSD. University of California, San Diego, where I was an undergraduate, that I got into the Mac myself. I, I uh, started working at the college newspaper, and they had just switched about a month before I got there to a uh, an entirely Mac workflow using PageMaker 2, I want to say, in 1989. Oh, see, and that's another area where I have you beat. I actually, I think I even still have the floppy disks of the PageMaker beta. Oh, Way yeah. Back See, when. By, by the time I got in there, a lot of the bugs had been worked out, and we we had I think two or three Mac SEs with those radius full page displays, and we had and we fought bitterly about who got to use the Mac Two CX with the two page display, <laughs> which was which was um, we we you know and we were shuttling the whole issue in on floppies back and forth between the slow computers and the fast computer until we bought Mac tops I think which was before system 7 there wasn't even file sharing but in my day there was no file sharing no. this is the old man conversation yes. isn't it sneaker net that's that, exactly what it was those were the, those were the days but i i you know having an apple 2 and then being able to go to the the newspaper office and have Word and have a laser printer. And we had a couple laser printers and, and, a, and an image setter that we used to print out the pages uh, on 11 by 17. And I was so spoiled by that 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 was the end. And, and I, they actually had a deal at the UCSD bookstore where you could buy, a, I think it was a Mac SE for $2,000. And the, the story now that I look back on it is the Mac Classic was waiting in the wings and they were trying to unload as many SEs as they could before they brought out the Classic. But that was the computer I bought with a built-in hard drive. I think it was like a 10-meg hard drive and a, and a floppy drive. And you know, and that was my my computer for for the rest of college, and that was I, I was hooked at that point. That was that was the end for me, and I was a Mac user um, through and through after that. Yeah, I was I, I I got the Lisa, brought it home. As I said, didn't do much with it other than play with with the Pascal environment, and uh, I went to the Boston Computer Society meeting the night that they introduced the Mac. Uh, I didn't get to make it into the big hall, but I was outside, and afterwards you get to go in and look and ooh and ah over it and I was of course kicking myself because I had the Lisa and the Lisa was incompatible until one of the Boston Computer Society folks told me that you know Apple had said that they were going to make a program that was going to turn your Lisa into a Macintosh and uh, one of the great things was that the Lisa had a bigger screen than the original Mac so when, it, when Lisa Works came out or not Lisa Works, Mac Works came out um, for the Lisa, I actually had a bigger screen than everybody else did. So, so you, funny. Had, you had the cool, you had the cool, I had the cool one, yes. Finally, and uh, I mean, it's, it, it's funny how things have changed over the years because uh, I can remember the Boston Computer Society um, and out here on the West Coast, BMUG, the Berkeley Mac User Group, being so big in terms of what we used to do. That was how we got all our information. That was where we sort of got together with everybody. Uh, that was where I met Rick Ford, where we started the Mac and Touch newsletter. So. Yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, the early days of, of starting Macintosh and then and then Mac Week too in the yeah. in those early days. Well, it, it, it was it was funny. Um, I met Rick Ford at the Boston Computer Society Mac Technical Group. So not only did you have the the big user groups, but you had all these subgroups. And uh, we met one night, and uh, we were talking. Rick was 
doing this mimeographed thing called the handle, I believe, and we talked and talked about how there were no Mac publications out there that we liked and that we, you know, really wanted something that gave us, you know, down and dirty information about the computer and, you know, something that we want to pay 40 bucks a, m a year for. And that was where we decided that we'd start this thing ourselves. And uh, we bought, we actually pulled our money, bought the first laser writer in the Boston area. And out of our basements for almost three years, we published Macintosh um, every month. And uh, this was, I mean, we, we did stories on the, the some of the computer services back then, CompuServe and Delphi and some of those guys, um, Apple Links. Um, and then we, we were, our problem was that we were not businessmen, we were editors, and we did we we didn't think about how to market ourselves. Just about the time where we were like, you know, we're gonna we're not gonna make any money on this thing. Um, Michael Chong, who was fairly active in the New York user group community um, and was also a big marketer, uh, decided he was gonna start a publication called Mac Week and basically came to talk to us and see if we'd be willing to um, give them the Mac and Touch subscriber list. And so we basically traded subscriber list for jobs and did a Macintosh column in MacWeek for years. And that's how you got started. Were you full-time MacWeek at that point? I was full-time MacWeek. Rick and I started full-time MacWeek. Uh, they did a, a preview issue. We were on board by the second issue. And then at, at some point you came out to be part of not just the Macintosh column, but to just be part of Mac, MacWeek right. editorial I, staff. Right. I, uh, I s Rick and I worked in Boston, which is where we were based at the time, and uh, I really got into the review side and basically was offered the reviews editor job, but I had to move out to California. And so I did that while Rick kept doing the Macintosh column in MacWeek for a while, and then in 1993, I believe, decided, you know, he saw this, this World Wide Web thing and decided that he ought to be on it and started the Macintosh website. So... Um, and then I became the basically the editor in chief at MacWeek before it uh, finally died in nineteen oh nineteen ninety eight, I believe. Sounds about right. Yeah. So I mean, bringing up that period, I mean that was definitely a, a dark period. I worked at I worked at Mac User at that time, and and uh, we had the Mac User Mac World merger, which was all part of the trouble that Apple was going through right. then. The 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 clone thing really hadn't work to anybody's expectations and then jobs came back and said the clone the clone experiment is over and and everybody was down on apple and 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 there were lots of rumors about apple being pretty much close to going out of business and uh times were tough then and it's interesting to look back on on that that now in the context of 30 years of apple and see these waves that this company has has gone through with the with the apple II and then with that mac introduction and then the mac just kind of faded away in, in, right. other than those of us who were the real diehards that was a really tough time and how different things are now than they, well, they were then it's funny you know as we as we as we sit at the beginning of this transition from one chip to another i've often thought of the transition we made from the motorola 68000 to the power pc in the mid 90s and how well apple engineered that transition that's why i have no fear that they will not be successful in the Intel transition. Um, where Apple fell apart was on following through in terms of developing the operating system, and they really had no strategy on the whole clone thing. They picked that up way too late, and when they picked it up, 
they went whole hog on it instead of trying to have a measured approach. Well, it was almost as if they were trying to make up for lost time, and the the the, the horse was already out of the barn. The PC, they, Apple was no longer going to be able to take on Windows just by you know, having a lot of clones out there. And, and right. you're right. I, I think people point to that the clones uh, as a milepost there. And I, in fact, I just did. But when you look at the OS development turmoil that was going on, then it was a complete disaster. When you talk about Copeland, which was announced and which was actually demoed and yet didn't really exist and was never really going to work. And there were blue boxes and pink boxes and orange ah. boxes and green boxes and and OpenDoc and all of these technologies that that CyberDog. Uh, yeah, all that Apple's. You know, little fiefdoms at the time were working on and trying to get bundled into the the operating system. I mean, I think you're right. The operating system was the was the the problem there, not the 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 hardware. Um, you know, but the, the the thing that that I would point to is you know you watch Steve Jobs come back in in 1999 and really bring a singular focus back to Apple. Um, you know, I, I can still remember the Sturm and Drang that went on about, you know, the next acquisition and, and you know, was OS ten just going to be next step with a, a fresh face on it and, you know, old-time Mac users being upset. Uh, but the, the, the thing that, that Steve Jobs and his team did was they made decisions, they, they focused on the right things in the operating system, and they executed on it. I mean, you look today, you know, we saw what this week that, that Windows Vista is going to get delayed yet again, even though, what, months ago they said it's going to ship at the end of 2006, really? darn it. And, you know, Apple's come up with how many revisions of OS X since the, the first public beta came out way back when? Yeah, I think, I think it's, yeah, I think, that, I think that since the last version of Windows was released, they've done four versions of yeah. OS X. And, and, and that's, that's what makes, that's what's made them successful. I mean, that and the iPod, of course. But um, back in the mid-90s, they really had no operating system strategy at all. Well, it's, I, I, I think it comes back, when I, when I think about Apple and, and what Apple represents, it, I think it comes back to creativity and having a, um, not necessarily a singular vision, but definitely having a, a, phil- a philosophy that involves creative uses of technology to reach real people. And, you know, the Apple II was that and was a success because it was, you know, a, the, a, a personal computer, an ac- a computer that you could actually use and that was not something that you'd need to solder together yourself out of parts. And with, with the Mac, it was the personal computer for the rest of us. It was getting away from those command line commands and, and having something much simpler and, and much more visual and having fonts and then, the, you know, you throw in the laser writer. It definitely was this kind of cohesive vision. And, and the Apple of the 90s, I, I think, was the time when they weren't themselves and they lost that and that you could see that in the clone decisions and in the OS decisions and, and in, and in the designs of the computers then that they were not sure what they were going to be and did they want to be Dell or did they want to be Microsoft and the creativity seemed to just evaporate and what we've seen with Jobs' return and the products we've seen from the iMac to the iPod to the current generation of Macs is, is, is whether it's Jobs, uh, as a creative force or it's jobs just knowing that he has to instill that level of creativity in the whole company that's wh- what they're back to now and that's why they're 
they're being successful again. I mean, yes, the products are the reason that they make money, but I think it's that cr- devotion to, to creatively trying to use technology for regular people, which you can go right back to the Apple, to the original Apple One and Apple Two and the Mac and draw a line to the yeah. iPod when, Absolutely. in terms of, phil- in terms of just philosophy. Yeah, I, I would agree completely with that. I would agree completely with that. I mean, the, the, and, and, and if you take that one step further, I mean, the Apple of today is like three times as creative as they were back in the early days. You know, they're, they're, you know, you've got these two groups, you know, one that's sort of focusing on consumer electronics and the, and music with the iPod. And then you've got this other group that's doing this stuff with, you know, OS 10 and, and the Macs and, the the stuff that you're seeing coming out of there and the stuff that we'll probably see in the next 10 years is just amazing. I mean, it is nothing short of amazing. I know before we started uh, start recording this podcast, you, you said something that I thought was really interesting, which was that, you know, given how much press Apple got for the original Mac when it came out in that sort of lull before Windows and IBM really just sort of started to accelerate and made the Mac not a player uh, on a major level in the PC world um, – and you compare that to now, and you were saying that you think that, that Apple has much more of, uh, I don't know, a, a degree of mind share in the general public, a degree of relevance than they ever had with the yes. Mac, even back then. Right. They, they, they got, I mean, back in 1984, I mean, computers were still, you know, they were something that someone else did, or, you know, they went to their job where there were big machines in rooms with windows where you couldn't go in unless you were clean and things like that. And, uh, you know, Apple got a lot of, of, of mind share. I mean, you know, they were on the cover of Time, you know, Steve Jobs was everywhere, and then Scully was around. Um, but you look now at the pervasiveness of Apple in our culture. And, I mean, it's nothing like it was back then, nothing like it was at all. And I think some of that is the iPod, um, or I think a lot of that is driven by the iPod, but I don't think it's all about the iPod. I think I think the, when I talk to people about the iPod halo effect, what I say is, look, I, the core of the iPod halo effect is that there was a, a group of people who just wrote Apple off as this weirdo company, and then they tried the iPod, and they said, oh, my God, this isn't a weirdo company. Th- this is really cool. And that gave Apple this credibility with a whole bunch of people who never – ever would have considered Apple a legitimate right. company yeah. before. I, I agree completely. My, my, my father um, has an iMac on the way. I set it up for him last weekend, and this is his first Mac. And, and he, he was one of those people who's been using a PC for years. He's not a big-time PC user. Um, you know, he's comfortable with it. And whenever I've talked to him in the past about, you know, well, you should use a Mac, you should buy a Mac, he's like, ah, I like what I do. You know, I just do my email, I check the web, I, you know, I'm sure he plays solitaire. I don't, I don't see it. Um, but uh, I, I got my sister an iPod last year for her birthday, and he was just amazed by this thing. Even though he, he doesn't want to listen to it, you know, he's not interested in, in listening to music. Um, but... Th- his computer was really starting to slow down on him. He was having some problems doing things, and he calls me up and says, so I think I'm going to get a Mac. And he is more excited about this than I've seen him excited about anything in a long time. So, it, I mean, it, it's... It, I think you're absolutely right when you say a lot of people give credit to the iPod, but it's not. I mean, it. you know, the Mac is still a great machine and a great platform. And, you know, the fact that, that Apple was able to hit such a home run with the iPod makes it easier for people to go, oh, yeah, I could, I could use a Mac. I think it also helps that 
back in the day, people looked at a computer as sort of an extension of this work computer. And it was like, well, I, I have this program that I run at work and I probably should be able to run that at home. And with everybody on the internet now and everything basically being in a web browser or an email, you know, it, it just isn't it isn't even that big a hurdle anymore that the Mac isn't going to run all those Windows programs because generally I think people look at it and say, hey, it, email, web, it's got photos, you know, photo software built in. It's, it's you know, it's it's much more appliance-like, which is, again, where the iMac, I think, is an advantage because Apple is perceived as this company that makes this great product that you just kind of plug in and it works and yeah. it works beautifully, which is, you know, uh, it, it's a, we've come a long way. Yes, we have. <laughs> we've, all, <laughs> we've all come a long way in, in these 30 years, um, and I'm sure we all wish Apple 30 more Successful years. years. Hopefully I'll be long retired by then. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and, and uh, I, I think their future is bright. So yeah, uh, I would agree. It's, it's a good thing. Rick, thanks for being on the podcast yeah, with me. Sure. It's my first podcast. I know. Was it, was it okay? It was fine. It's fun. Excellent. Well, Sarus, back to you. Well, that about wraps up show number 33 for the Macworld Podcast. Make sure you stick around on Macworld.com and check out all of our coverage. We've got an Apple timeline. We've got our own Macworld Top 30 Apple products. We've got uh, the book excerpt from Owen Linsmeyer and all kinds of other things. So make sure you, you hop on over to Macworld.com and check out all that great stuff. Also, I just wanted to say thank you so much to all the people who've been writing in over the past couple of weeks. I've, it's been really great to hear from you. I've gotten emails from South Africa, from Spain, from Italy, from Japan, from Canada, all over the U.S., from Indiana, from Florida, from Hawaii, from Maine, from Washington State, from Texas, everywhere. I'm so glad that people are writing it. It makes me feel like, you know, that you guys are out there listening and we really have a conversation and a community going. So thank you again. Sadly, I must announce that I am all flat out of third-generation iPod cases, so that will be the end of the third-generation iPod case giveaway. So if you were one of the lucky few to get some, then uh, congratulations to you. We may be having some more giveaways in the future, so all you have to do is just keep listening right here in the Macworld podcast, and we're going to be telling you how you can get some various loot that we're going to be giving out. Um, also, make sure you check out our new blog, MacUser.com. I'm one of the bloggers up on there. We've got all kinds of neat Apple uh, links and stories and random items that we, you know, call from various places on the web. So be sure and check that out as well. Also, of course, all the rest of the coverage at MacWorld.com. And don't forget uh, our own Rob Griffith's uh, site, MacOS10Hints.com. That's MacOSXHints.com. Uh, he's got every day several really neat and kind of geeky hints uh, for how to improve uh, your use of of, Ma of the Mac. Also, one last thing. Um, instead of emailing me this time, we're going to try something a little bit new. Go on over to the show notes on the Macworld podcasting page for this show, show number 33, and drop in some comments on the bottom. Um, the one advantage of being able to, you know, put questions and comments up on the website is that it allows the other listeners in different parts of the world to interact with each other. We've got a very active forums community, so you can, you know, start a conversation right in there in the comments or also in the rest of the Macworld.com forums. Uh, and that way it can be a conversation between all of us, not just between, you know, me and you, the listener out there. So if, um, 
If you want to submit any other questions, comments, answers, suggestions, theories, whatever it is, uh, feel free to email me, cfarovar at macworld.com, and also please do leave a comment in our show notes. Uh, but we really do appreciate uh, your support, and thank you, thank you for listening. So, we hope that you've enjoyed our coverage of the 30th anniversary of Apple Computer, and again, check out all of our stuff at macworld.com. Signing off from San Francisco... This is Sarus Faravar for the Macworld Podcast.